Hello, and welcome to another podcast of Time Magazine for Airs LA. I need to remind you that you are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers, and no unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. My name is Nancy Porter, and I will be sharing, first of all, items from the September 25th issue of Time Magazine. This one is from the business section. Headline, Small Grocers Are Hurting. My Buying Habits Don't Help. By Alana Samuels. Every week, I go into Walmart's website and order a bunch of groceries to be delivered to my house. And then I end up feeling a little bit guilty. By shopping at Walmart, I am likely contributing to the demise of the independently owned grocery store, which is disappearing across the country. But the prices make the choice easy. On a recent day, a 42-ounce tub of Quater Oats was $9.99 at Key Foods and $5.68 at Walmart. A 500 milliliter bottle of California olive ranch oil was $14.49 versus $8.37. And Rao's homemade tomato sauce was $9.99 versus $6.88. These prices are one major reason Walmart captures one in four grocery dollars in America. That may not last. These days, the U.S. government appears ready to listen to the argument that Walmart and other big chains, including Dollar General, which is expanding at a rapid clip across the country, come by those prices unfairly because of their market power. There's a law on the books, 1936's Robinson-Patman Act, that essentially says suppliers in any industry cannot give lower prices and special deals to big chain stores if it costs them the same to serve them as other stores. The law also says retailers can't bully suppliers into giving those discounts. But Walmart and dollar stores are so huge, representing a big part of a supplier's business, they are able to extract deals and low prices from suppliers according to Small Business Rising and the Main Street Competition Coalition, two groups of independent business owners making their case in congressional hearings and television ads. It's not just groceries. Independent pharmacies, bookstores, auto parts stores, and other types of retailers are also struggling on an uneven playing field, they say. Walmart's leverage may seem like a good deal for consumers like me. In an era of runaway inflation, who doesn't want the lowest prices they can get? But the rise of Walmart does indeed contribute to the demise of independent stores, the grocers say. Since suppliers lose money by giving discounts to stores like Walmart, they increase the prices they charge to other stores, a phenomenon economists call the waterbed effect. The higher-priced stores struggles, lose customers, and go out of business. Then the big-box stores, their dominance established and their competitors wiped out, raise prices. During the pandemic, 
That meant consumers living in lower income areas far from big box stores weren't able to get the groceries they needed. Everyone deserves access to healthy food and eating options, says Letitia Brunson, a councilwoman in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, where a grocery store closed in November of 2022. Her ward does still have dollar stores with shelf-stable products, but now residents can't shop for fresh food without a car. Neither Walmart, Dollar General, nor Dollar Tree, which also owns Family Dollar, returned a request for comment. For a long time, from when it was passed until the late 1960s, Robinson-Patman was a prime enforcement priority of the Federal Trade Commission, says John Kirkwood, an antitrust expert at Seattle University School of Law. But the field of antitrust underwent a populist revolution starting in the late 1960s and 1970s, in which academics, lawyers, and eventually judges decided it was more important to prioritize consumer welfare than small businesses. A 1969 report by Ralph Nader exoriated the FTC for protecting small businesses, arguing that doing so drove up prices for consumers. In the wake of this populist push, the FTC and Justice Department slowed the pace of bringing Robinson-Patman cases. Those they did bring were less and less successful, until it became extremely difficult to win one, says Kirkwood, who was the lead counsel on one such case filed by the FTC in 1988. But today, the argument the big chains need to be reined in is regaining traction with the FTC. Under Chair Lena Kahn, appointed in 2021, the FTC has embarked on an aggressive path of antitrust enforcement. In March, Kahn said that the agency wanted to bring more cases under the law in short order. Meanwhile, FTC Commissioner Alvaro Bedoya has embarked on a national listening tour, meeting with independent grocery stores and pharmacy operators and talking about how Robinson-Patnam enforcement could help them thrive. I do think that the corporate power in this country is such that slowly folks, no matter what their politics are, are starting to say this is too much, Bedoya told a room of people in July as he visited Oasis, an independent grocery store that opened in 2021 in North Tulsa, Oklahoma, after the city passed an ordinance limiting the proliferation of dollar stores. My hope is that five or ten or fifteen years from now there will be bipartisan agreement that we need to work harder to protect small businesses like Oasis. That government officials are standing up for independent businesses represents a sea change in how we think about what's good and bad for the U.S. shopper. For decades, the FTC and Justice Department have focused antitrust enforcement on protecting consumers from monopolies that can drive up prices concluding that if shoppers are getting a good deal, there's no reason for the government to step in. Enforcing Robinson-Patman means the government would focus less on whether I'm getting a good deal on groceries and more on whether the fabric of my community is better off with the status quo. The biggest grocery stores and box stores aren't evenly distributed around the country. They tend to be clumped in more affluent suburban areas, says Bedora. 
Rural and urban areas are disproportionately served by independent grocers, and they go out of business when dollar and big box stores come in and undercut those grocers on price. A Walmart located in the suburbs, even if it's just eight or nine miles from a center city, is not a good solution for neighborhoods where people don't have cars or access to consistent public transit. What you're left with is some of the poorest people in the country, some of the people in the most underserved areas, are left without a place to buy fresh groceries or just groceries, period, Bedoya says. Of course, it makes some sense today that Walmart would get lower prices from a cereal company or juice seller. It's ordering huge amounts of product, and that sheer volume creates efficiencies that arguably save suppliers money. But the grocers are arguing that Walmart and big boxes aren't actually creating efficiencies, while still using their size to extract deals. Instead of waiting for the FTC to act, many independent grocers have banded together into cooperatives so they'll have more bargaining power. Those giant co-ops buy billions of dollars of groceries and have warehouses all around the country, just like Walmart does. Associated Wholesale Grocers, for instance, is a food co-op that serves 3,400 member supermarkets, representing $24 billion in sales. By contrast, there are 4,631 Walmarts in the U.S. AWG buys goods by the truckload rather than the case, so suppliers sends a truck to its warehouse in the same way it would send a truck to Walmart, says David Smith, AWG's president and chief executive officer. Smith, who grew up in the grocery business, says that back in the 1970s when Robinson Patnam was enforced, suppliers would issue rate cards to tell grocery stores how much an item cost. The amount on the card depended on how much the stores bought. A case, a pallet, and a full truckload of a product would all have different rates. But after three decades of Walmart growing and gaining market power, he says now, there's no transparency whatsoever. And what's happening is efficiency is being surpassed by leverage. Walmart now accounts for 25% of all groceries purchased, compared with about 10% at competitors like Kroger and Costco, says Jason Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer at Publix Group. According to AWG, its stores average about 35,000 square feet. The average Walmart is around 110,000 square feet, says Goldberg. So Walmart inevitably buys more product overall, leading to better prices offered to the bigger buyers. Indeed, suppliers have not issued list prices to retailers in decades, Goldberg says. Instead, they sit down with retailers and negotiate prices along with joint marketing spending and product placement. Deals are very hard to compare because they have so many moving parts. But one thing is for sure. The retailers with the least leverage are going to pay the most, he says. And the biggest retailers with the most leverage are going to pay the least. 
The grocers say the discounts Walmart gets are not commensurate with the efficiencies the company creates. Many store owners have experiences like that of R.F. Bush, who owns 23 independent grocery convenience and hardware stores in South Dakota. He will sometimes walk into a Walmart and see lower prices on the shelves even than he can get wholesale through AWG. In December, for instance, Walmart was selling a dozen eggs for $2.27 when he was buying them for $3. Walmart was selling iceberg lettuce for $1.88 a head when he was getting it for $4.46. My customers just don't understand when they look at my shelf price and Walmart's shelf price, says Bush. He's had to sell three stores since 2019 because it was impossible to keep them afloat. Suppliers' allegiance to Walmart solidified during the pandemic, says Bush and other grocers. Because Walmart makes up such a big share of a supplier's business, they could demand on-time delivery, even during the pandemic, when everything was running late. In September 2020, Walmart told suppliers they needed to be making on-time and in-full shipments 98% of the time or face steep fines. As a result, suppliers shifted whatever they had available to Walmart. Bush and independent grocers, on the other hand, couldn't even get the items their customers needed, and so their customers switched over to the big box stores. Suppliers mince no words explaining how dependent they are on Walmart. In regulatory filings, giants like Kraft Heinz and Nestle mention Walmart by name, explaining that consolidation in grocery has led to retailers with increased purchasing power and that those retailers can demand lower pricing and more favorable terms. There are industry watchers who say enforcement of Robinson Patnam would result in higher prices for consumers. By enforcing the law, said former FTC Commissioner Joshua Wright at a Cato Institute event in 2022, the government would not be prioritizing consumer welfare, but would be instead just assuming that big is bad. That is a real question for consumers whether the FTC's enforcement of Robinson-Patnam could drive prices up. Economists are still divided. Some studies show enforcement would drive up prices. Others suggest that it wouldn't. If the FTC can somehow prove that enforcement will not raise consumer costs and will instead create a country with big chain stores and small independents with similar prices, it may have a fighting chance at restarting enforcement after more than 30 years. But it's going to be an uphill battle. Any cases filed under Robinson-Patnam will likely eventually end up in appeals court and maybe even the Supreme Court, and both are likely to take a dim view of it because they are so conservative, says Kirkwood. You'd have to go up against these judges who think it's the left-wing FTC trying to revive the Robinson-Patman Act, he says. I like the idea of shopping at the Independence, after all, but my pocketbook vastly prefers the cheap prices at Walmart. I suppose 
I should be willing to pay a little more so that Americans living far from a big box store can also get fresh groceries. But it's hard to volunteer to pay higher prices on behalf of an unknown fellow citizen. In the meantime, Walmart is gaining even more leverage when people like me decide to shop there, making the independence fight for equal prices even harder. All right, we move now to a story from The View. This is from the world stage title, The Decay of Iran. The Islamic Republic of Iran has thus far proved too ideologically rigid to reform and too ruthless to collapse. As in the late stages of the Soviet Union, however, the foundations decay in plain sight. Outside their homeland, women of Iranian origin become world-class mathematicians and astronauts. Inside Iran, the ruling clerics debate whether women should be allowed to ride bikes. One year ago this month, the regime's morality police detained and beat a 22-year-old woman, Masa Gina Amini, for allegedly showing too much hair beneath her compulsory veil. Her death in custody triggered Iran's longest anti-government protest since the 1979 revolution that transformed the country from a U.S.-allied monarchy to an anti-American Islamist theocracy. Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei managed these protests, as he always does, by crushing dissent, dividing adversaries, adversaries, and refusing to offer any concessions. Over 20,000 people were arrested and over 500 killed, including several who were executed. Compromising under pressure, Khamenei believes only projects weakness and emboldens more dissent. For the U.S., Iran's internal political dynamics have a direct bearing on national security. Viewed from Washington, Tehran is the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism, is actively trying to assassinate former U.S. officials to avenge the 2019 killing of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani, provides Vladimir Putin lethal drones in his war against Ukraine, and has taken more U.S. citizens hostage than any other country in the world. At least five who have collectively spent two decades as hostages in Tehran's Ivan prison could soon be returned to the U.S which they have been now, in return for the U.S. unfreezing at least $6 billion in Iranian assets frozen in South Korea. There should be no illusion that this deal will lead to a thaw in U.S.-Iran relations. Senior Iranian officials, who publicly advocate hostage trading as an economic policy, have already announced that the practice will continue. A bigger challenge for the Biden administration heading into election season is an advancing Iran nuclear program that could potentially trigger Israeli military action and skyrocketing oil prices. 
Five years after the Trump administration withdrew from the 2015 Iran nuclear agreement signed by the Obama administration, the CIA assesses that Tehran has the technical capacity to build nuclear weapons and is within weeks of having the fissile material to do so. Going for a bomb, however, would be a risky move for Khomeini. Iran's nuclear sites have been thoroughly penetrated by Israel and the United States, as evidenced by routine acts of sabotage reported at Iranian nuclear facilities and the assassination of top nuclear scientists. Khomeini's making the decision to weaponize also risks tilting the balance of power toward the Revolutionary Guards, who would likely control the nuclear codes and would aspire to control the country. Successive U.S. administrations have sought to defuse Iran's nuclear program and end the U.S.-Iran Cold War by either trying to engage the Iranian regime diplomatically or subjecting it to economic pressure in the hopes the regime will either capitulate or implode. None of these efforts has borne fruit. Death to America remains the Islamic Republic's enduring slogan. But another pillar of the revolution is compulsory hijab. And a year after Amini's death, Thousands of Iranian women defy these rules daily, despite the regime's use of Chinese facial recognition technology to punish violations of law of hijab and chastity. The country's economy is a shambles, and its former Minister of the Environment ominously warned that continued mismanagement of water resources could mean 50 million Iranians, 70% of the country, will have no choice but to leave the country. Climate scientists say parts of Iran, which this year reached temperatures of 152 degrees Fahrenheit, could be the first places on Earth too hot to be inhabited by humans. After two decades of failure in Iran and Afghanistan, and the disappointing outcomes of the 2011 Arab uprising, the United States has little confidence that it can positively impact political outcomes in the Middle East. Indeed, absent a cohesive liberal opposition, an implosion of the Islamic Republic is less likely to be followed by an Iranian version of Jeffersonian democracy than by a military government. For now, it remains a security state commanded by an octogenarian cleric who has held the title of supreme leader since 1989, before most Iranians were born. Everyone is just waiting, a recent visitor from Tehran said, for the leader to die. And that was written by Karim Sajedpour, who is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Moving now to an item titled Health Matters by Alice Park, Time Magazine's senior health correspondent. Every fall and winter, as temperatures drop, it's a battle between man and microbe, 
as viruses take advantage of our nesting instincts to spread sore throats, runny and stuffy noses, fevers, and coughs that won't stop. This respiratory disease season, however, we're armed for the first time with tools against respiratory syncytial virus, RSV, which causes disease primarily in older people and infants. That means more shots for these groups, but also hopefully fewer infections, visits to the hospital, and even deaths from RSV. Here's advice from some experts on how to navigate the new choices and who should be getting which vaccines against the major respiratory diseases we'll face in coming months. Flu. Everyone six months or older should be getting a flu shot to protect against influenza, says the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC. COVID-19. There will be an updated vaccine, which health officials are likely to recommend for most people around mid-September. The vaccine will target the XBB.1.5 variant, which was circulating earlier this summer when the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's Expert Committee of Vaccine Experts met to advise manufacturers about updating their shots. While XBB.1.5 is no longer the dominant variant causing disease in the country, vaccine makers say they have conducted studies to show that the XBB.1.5 shots continue to protect against some of the latest variants causing infections. And finally, RSV. There are two new vaccines for people over age 60 and those who are pregnant, and an antibody shot for babies eight months old to protect against RSV. CD officials have already said that people over 60 may get the vaccine and that babies under eight months old who are born during months when RSV spreads from October to April should get the antibody injection. Older infants up to 19 months could also get the shot if they are at higher risk of infection. But health authorities are still discussing whether all pregnant people should be vaccinated, which would protect newborns from the moment they are born. All right, we move now to October 9th issue of Time Magazine. And here is a page from Sam Jacobs, Editor-in-Chief. The people behind artificial intelligence. What is unique about AI is also what is most feared and celebrated. Its ability to match some of our own skills and then go to further, accomplishing what humans cannot. Yet behind every advance in machine learning are, in fact, people. Both the often obscured human labor that makes large language models safer to use, and the individuals who make critical decisions on when and how to best use this technology. Reporting on people and influence is what Time magazine does best. That led us to the Time 100 AI. The cover of Time has always reflected the forces shaping society. Generative AI first landed there in February. This shift marks the most important technological breakthrough since social media. Correspondents Andrew Chow and Billy Perigio wrote at that time. By May, 
we gathered a selection of voices on the potential risks presented by this new technology. That issue, with a cover asking if AI could mark the end of humanity, went online days after hundreds of leading AI scientists and CEOs released a startling statement. Mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks such as pandemics and nuclear war. Among the signatories was OpenAI CEO Sam Altman, perhaps the most powerful person in AI today. For a June cover story announcing the Time 100 companies, our annual list of the most influential companies in the world, he told former Time Editor-in-Chief Edward Felsenhall that he was at once very optimistic and prepared for things to go super wrong at any point. Then, for a July cover story, Billy traveled to Karnataka, India, to interview Manu Chopra, CEO of startup Karya, about the new model he is piloting to help the rural poor benefit from the AI boom. It becomes apparent why journalists at time have tried to underscore that the most important thing to understand about AI is how fast it's growing. The level of innovation I'm seeing now is stronger than I've ever seen in my entire life by orders of magnitude, former Google CEO Eric Schmidt told senior correspondents Vera Bergengruen in an interview for Time 100 AI. I've been through timesharing and the PC industry, the web revolution, the Unix revolution, and Linux, and Facebook and Google, and this is all growing faster than the sum of all of those. Time's most knowledgeable editors and reporters spent months fielding recommendations from dozens of sources to gather hundreds of nominations that were whittled down to 45 leaders at the forefront of the AI boom. Individuals outside these companies who are grappling with profound ethical questions around the uses of AI and the innovators around the world who are trying to use AI to address social challenges, says editor Lena Bachka, who led the effort. Therefore, many different stories represented by these individuals and the transformations they are helping lead. Times owners and co-chairs Mark and Lynn Benioff have invested in AI startup companies. Salesforce, where Mark Benioff is CEO, has invested in AI companies as well. This group is in many ways a map of the relationships driving the development of AI. They are rivals and regulators, scientists and artists, advocates and executives, the competing and cooperating humans whose insights, desires, and flaws will shape the directions of an increasingly influential technology. Included in this issue, therefore, Former Time Editor Walter Isaacson's exclusive report on Elon Musk's fight for the future of AI. That compelling saga is taken from Walter's new biography of Musk, which features other members of the Time 100 AI in prominent roles.
we continue with a message from the CEO. The future is now. This was written by Jeff Sibley, the Chief Executive Officer of Time. Headline, The Future is Now. This month, I spoke with Patrick Gelsinger, CEO of Intel, our presenting sponsor, who is committed to scaling the accessibility of AI. These are our highlights from our conversation about what's next in AI. We've been talking about AI for decades, but the current buzz about generative AI is unlike anything we've ever seen. What can AI do now that it couldn't do before? Answer. We are in the midst of an extraordinary period of renaissance in AI, which is impacting every aspect of our lives. The opportunity, and where Intel is focused, is bringing AI everywhere, making it more accessible to all and easier to integrate at scale across the continuum of workloads from computers and edge devices to the network and cloud. Question. What's next beyond generative AI? While generative AI is in the spotlight right now, it's just a sliver of what AI can and will do. Longer term, the magic of AI is its scale. AI will fundamentally transform, reshape, and restructure the PC experience, unleashing personal productivity and creativity through the power of the cloud and PC and edge devices working together. We are entering the new age of the AI PC where your PC will offer secure AI capabilities for things we use in our everyday lives. Question. How important is it to guard against the unethical use of AI technology as you design, build, and deploy it? It's our job as technologists and a society to shape AI as a force for good. There must always be a scientific and data-driven basis for the governance that guides the AI journey. We cannot let ourselves blindly follow economic and algorithmic innovations that run amok. All right, let's move on to a different type of article from a different world. Good question. Headline, what's behind the spike in child poverty in the United States? by Belinda Luscombe. The number of children living in poverty in the United States more than doubled in 2022, according to a new figure released by the U.S. Census Bureau on September 12th, the biggest increase since it began using its current method to count them. In 2021, 5.2% of children were living in poverty. In 2022, that figure was more than doubled to 12.4% or about 9 million children. This hike was part of a wider rise in poverty recorded by the census, some of which can be attributed to inflation. But advocates for children say the leap was particularly stark for kids and was avoidable. A rise in the number of impoverished children had been expected because of the expiration of the enhanced version of the Child Tax Credit Program 
that Congress instituted in July of 2021 during the pandemic. The expanded child credit program gave parents a historically high yearly tax credit of up to $3,600 per child, depending on age, which did not have to be paid back if their tax bill didn't reach a certain amount. Those credits, along with bumps and other government benefits, sent child poverty to a historic low in 2021. Now, the rates have rebounded. Our child poverty rates are back to their 2019 level, said the U.S. Census Bureau's Leanna Fox in a conference call announcing the new figures. That child tax credit, making it fully refundable, expanding it to all individuals, had a substantial in decrease in child poverty. Advocates for children seized on the moment to trumpet the effectiveness of the policy and to lament lawmakers' decision to end it after six months. This data once again highlights that poverty in our country isn't a personal failing, but rather a policy choice, said Melissa Botich, Vice President of Income Security at the National Women's Law Center, in a statement. Lawmakers have the power to lift millions of women and children out of poverty if they would just choose to prioritize families over their wealthy donors. We know what works. But other policy advisory organizations worried that the benefits would provide a disincentive for parents to work and thus push children further into poverty. The Joint Committee on Taxation estimated in 2022 that extending the benefits would shrink GDP and reduce tax revenues by $1.3 billion for the decade after they were introduced. The Tax Foundation, a nonpartisan think tank, estimated that maintaining the enhanced credits would cost taxpayers $1.6 trillion over 10 years and cautioned that if they were made permanent, the program should be financed in a way that does not create significant headwinds to economic recovery. Child advocates like Bruce Leslie, president of First Choice on Children, think that number could be reduced with a few changes, such as lowering the cutoff age for eligibility and not making the payments monthly. But he believes it would be worth it to keep the whole enchilada. Poverty really does affect every aspect of the lives of kids, he says. It affects kids' education, their health, their nutrition, and then has negative consequences on things like child abuse and homelessness. He cites figures that suggest child poverty costs the United States up to $1.1 trillion annually in loss of productivity and increased crime and health care costs. The census figures also showed that children were the only age group that saw a drop in health coverage in 2022, a situation that will be exacerbated by the post-pandemic shrinkage of Medicaid in 2024. And as of September 30th, the funding booster the federal government has been offering states to offset child care costs will dry up. That could result in the loss of 70,000 programs and over 3 million child care 
spots. According to the Century Foundation, a progressive public policy think tank. Those developments look like a perfect storm to those working in the child welfare sector. As families are struggling, we're now compounding that by making access to child care harder and even more unaffordable, says Leslie. But he and others see the census figures as a lesson in what works and hope the enhanced CTC benefits are revived. This is the number one thing on the agenda for the Democrats, and a lot of Republicans have introduced bills to expand the child tax credit, says Leslie, who worked on Capitol Hill for 12 years. I do believe we'll see an extended version of the child tax credit in the next few years. And the next article is titled, Launched, an Impeachment Probe Aiming for Biden. Under pressure from hard-right members, then-House Speaker Kevin McCarthy opened an impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden on September 12th over his family's business dealings, despite an absence of any evidence that Biden profited from them. The inquiry will center on whether Biden played a role in, or financially benefited from, his son Hunter's overseas business affairs. It will also focus on whether other members of the Biden family illicitly used their proximity to power to enrich themselves, a source familiar tells time. But an investigation by the House Oversight Committee has not produced any evidence that the president profited from his son's business dealings, leading even some GOP legislators to dismiss an impeachment inquiry as politically motivated. Others, like Georgia Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, says it warrants deep scrutiny. Ian Sams, a White House spokesperson, called the inquiry extreme politics at its worst. Should House Republicans impeach Biden, the effort would likely be dead on arrival in the Democratic-controlled Senate. All right, that will conclude our time coverage for today. We will continue next week. I'm Nancy Porter, and it has been my pleasure to bring you excerpts from Time magazine.